only the ones after that were real. But, but the first one, you know, they had to fake in order to <clears throat> preserve American faith, America's faith. You know, they, they had said that they, Kennedy had promised to go before the decade was out, and apparently they couldn't do it, so they had to fake it. I believe what? the next ones were, were real. Maybe there's no way to get through the Van Allen, uh, what is it, the radiation belt? Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, radiation there's some belt. kind of Stargate or some kind of, apparently, from what I have learned or research, you know, in my research. Yeah, there's some kind of Stargate. That's a, the, There's this movie called Stargate. There's always... You know what's what's really going on is reflected in the movies. You know they have yeah, to it is, it they is. have to um, kind of tell us the truth in order yeah. for the magic to work. Right, exactly. Um, you know that's the appeal of Star Trek because that's how it actually is, and so it kind of taps into ancestral memories. You know? That's true. Right. Right. Anyway, so yeah, and so filmed in the same studio as um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's why it kind of looks, you know, kind of looks the same. It's possible. I don't know. I wasn't there. Yeah. It's that like was people tell me, oh, they above my pay grade and yeah. I don't know. before I was born. So, and they're counting on, <laughs> and they're, they're sticking to that. Well, there's, I, I know learned people that have told me that, yeah, we went to the room and I said, were you with them? Did you go with them? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I there's... Said, when I was a kid, I believed it, but, you know, after 60 years of living on a planet and knowing how corrupt people are and how much mm-hmm. they lie, mm-hmm. I really don't know. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I wasn't there. I think there's a really good chance it was, uh, you know, they did find out that there's some kind of stargate or some, yeah, radiation belt that couldn't get through and hmm. who knows, maybe it actually um, exploded. What I personally what I believe would happen. And, but they, yeah, like you're, you're saying, they couldn't let the Russians know that or, you know, save face sort of thing. Didn't, um, there was some, there was a disaster that happened to the Russians too, right? Yeah. Well, there was Sputnik. And no, what Sputnik about it? Was Sputnik. Like a satellite put up. Sputnik. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe the Russian tried and they failed. They're not as. Um, I bet they're they're stupider than we give them credit for. I bet because, um, I mean, these beings that we're dealing with, they're like millions of years old, you know. And apparently, there's they uh, they can't procreate anymore. The radiation in space and um, 
also the like their civilization took uh, this like more like scientific thing. But there's all kinds of different extraterrestrials, and you know what the the um, that's the show that's done the best on my podcast. So all the um, it, it totally depends on the title too. It's very important, like the title. <coughs> this one was it was um, Doctor So and So. Um, talks about all the different kinds of extraterrestrials. It was a Gaia show, and damn, that got like, that's got over 3,000 hits, downloads, or whatever. 3 million? 3,000, oh, like 3,500. Uh, yeah, that's my uh, best performing podcast. When I was a kid, it, it was all, when that was happening, when the moon landings and stuff, they were talking about, oh yeah, it's going to be it's gonna be great, they're going to extract all kinds of elements and ores and shit out of the moon, and a moon base is going to be built, and they're going to be able to do this and that. Personally, what I think would happen, the first one, they had to fake because they couldn't quite do it. And then in the early 70s, they started going for real. And they, I think they made it. But I think what happened was that uh, there were aliens there that told the guys, hey, stop coming here. Don't, you know. They let them come a few times, but then they said, stop coming here. Don't come here anymore. And because uh, they stopped going. You know? Thank you. They stopped going. The last mission was Apollo 13, which was, uh, which was uh, they almost got killed. Hmm. They, they went around the moon to, you know, so that they can whiplash their way back to, to Earth, but they were in trouble. They got hit with an ast- a tiny little asteroid hmm. and uh, got, uh, got their systems knocked out, and they had to really sweat it. Uh, they were on minimum power and minimum life support. They were just barely getting a signal back to Earth, and it was almost a catastrophe for them. They had to actually go in manually, and it was really tight because you could burn up very easily if you go if, if the angle is too steep or too shallow. Look at how that mountain just kind of pops up out of nowhere, right over there, that hill. Maybe it comes out at night. How about you want to bet? There's there's something, it's like a burial mound or something. I bet, I bet all these, I mean, I would just, I just wish I could, uh, you asked what time period, I would love to go back in time, you know, I don't know, go back in time and see how this area has changed. Yeah, like that'd be really cool. The moon is a see, human say like 10,000 years ago, mm. oh. 20, 30, 40, a million years ago. <clears throat> the moon is a huge mystery, you know? There's, there's all kinds of reports that when asteroids hit, it sounds like a gong. Yeah, like a bell. Yeah. It rang like a bell. That's what a astronaut said. Yeah. Very mysterious place. 
There's another one too, is it? Buzz, I want to say Buzz Aldrin maybe? Who said, I think it was, like, that they, that there were things there that were watching them that, you know, to make sure that they left. <laughs> you know, kind of like set up, the, you know, that the, there were, uh, there were beings on the moon that showed up or, so what he said, that's what he said. But that's saying, so maybe they did figure out a way to go to the moon. I don't know. Also, you know, there's been an increase. But. They were dropping uh, atom bombs and shit, right? They were experimenting with that and dropping atom bombs, increasing aliens. And, you know, maybe they're concerned because <laughs> actually uh, that radiation could be uh, interfering with their genetic experiments. That's why they're so concerned about us using nukes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That really fucks up the. Um. You know that may, that has huge ramifications, and that's what I've learned that Area Forty One is all about. And um, because we were fucking around with nuclear experiments. And they came to shut it down. That's what the, there was. There was a huge spike in like UFO thing. They were shutting it down. Area Forty One. They were. And and but uh, and then there was another report by someone on Gaia explaining that it was actually. Um, there's kind of like dueling in influences. There's I they said that there had been a um like a conflict, a little conflict, or in, in, in the had been shot down, and uh, yeah, I think I think maybe what's going on is. The U.S. government, you know, because Hitler, you know about how Hitler used psychics to figure out what was going on in Antarctica, and then they understood there's a civilization under there. What are you doing, shitbird? There's a civilization there. I think it's the reptilians. Pretty sure I heard from one source that it was a reptilians. I'm gonna go with that. I think I think that um, Hitler established contact with the reptilians, and they made a deal for some exchange of technology. And um, there because they had this like bell. They call it the bell. It looks like a big bell. It's, it's a uh, it's a um, UFO, basically type of UFO. Hey, ah! get off. 
get off. 22 positions in a one night stand. So what get. is that little handbag that we're always carrying? Marion's always carrying that little handbag. Yeah, uh, Graham Hancock calls that the man bag. I think that, well, okay, most people don't, like, it's kind of like a new question that's come up, partially because of Graham Hancock. Um, I think he even went on Joe Rogan show and he was talking about it. You probably saw that clip, right? Is that where you heard about it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's Graham Hancock. He's, he's great. I'm... <clears throat> pitching a show with Gaia where he would be the principal and we get together a team of people from Gaia and we go and explore these places that these newer uh, excavation sites, archaeological sites like Gebekli Tepe in, in Turkey and, um, and Baalbek it's in Lebanon well, I guess you know, it's interesting how many of these places are war-torn, right? You know, like uh, um, the one in Lebanon, Baalbek, which was apparently, it's called Cyclopean architecture, giants, the giant, a race of giants that Bible talks about, other, you know, all the world's mythology, so-called mythology histories. They want to talk keep that about. hidden all, 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 you know, all the time. They want to keep that. They want to keep that hidden all they can, as long as they mm. can. Yeah, for sure. That's why they they've hidden away the giant skeletons that have been found around the world, around the world. Giant skeletons, and the Native Americans have stories about about these giants. They were cannibalistic. They had two sets of teeth. They had six fingers. And um, in one case, I'm trying to remember what state that was, maybe it was New Mexico. Um, the Native Americans had a, okay, the, these people went in to collect some bat guano and they found some skeletons of these uh, kind of like giant <coughs> red, red hair. Um, beings, and as it turns out, the Native Americans in that area, they told them what, you know, their story, which, you know, the, the stupid thing is that, like, if you just ask the people who live there what happened, they usually have an idea of what happened because they passed a story down, you know, through the ages. They have an idea. They know, you know. So um, it's just that the colonizer, colonizer don't want to listen. Colonizer don't like to listen. No se gustan escuchar. El colonizador. Colonizador. Conquistador. Here we go. You ever watch the X-Files? <laughs> yeah. It's really weird. Really Actually, right, right, right.
Do you think are those based on real stories? Bad mate. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should hang out. Hang out here more. Work on this area a little bit more. It'll, it'll. Well, I just had an idea. Could make a stencil and paint or spray with spray paint. You know, maybe maybe like a nice design on that side of that trailer. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe not. You know, it'd be really cool. Maybe like cover it up with. Wood planks make it look like a wood house. Where are you gonna put the punching bag? Oh yeah. Um, I had thought down there near where I was parking my bike. Some parts. At the. The cave. Buddha. By that little Buddha on the wall. Buddha at the bottom of the stairs. Is there a place to hang it? There's a tree. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Do you smell something, Dr. Baker? Huh. I grew that mesquite over there. See, look, it's a, oh, how tall is that? Nine feet tall? Eight feet tall? How long ago? <coughs> um, it's been there a couple years. Wow, that's pretty fast in two years. Yeah, one of these days it'll make some nice shade here. Yeah. And that's a nice cactus. Did you plant that there, or was that there the whole time? Which one, the um? Elephant there. Yeah. Elephant? Okay. Yeah, I planted. I planted. It's old. Totem pole. Look at that saguaro. That's a tall motherfucker. Is <laughs> that how tall is that? Thing? Yeah, he's. 6, 12, 24, 30, at least 30 feet tall. At least. Maybe more. How much do they grow a year? What do they grow? Like a foot and a half or something? <coughs> Wow, dude. According to National Park Service, the saguaro cactus grows as a column at a very slow rate, with all growth occurring at the tip or top of the cactus. It can take 10 years for a saguaro cactus to reach one inch in height. <laughs> By 70 years of age, a saguaro cactus can reach six and a half feet tall. And will finally start to produce their first flowers. How old is a 20-foot saguaro cactus? Okay. 
Um, it's got to be like a couple hundred years old. 25 feet is 107 years old. So this one's over 100 years old. Yeah. Lucky it didn't get dynamited. <laughs> uh, hmm. There was a lot of dynamiting over here 100, 120 years ago, 1900. Swords have a relatively long lifespan, often exceeding 150 years. They may grow the first sidearm. Yeah, that one's probably 150 years, I would say. They may grow their first sidearm around 75, 100 years of age. But some never grow any arms. Arms are developed to increase the plant's reproductive capacity as more apices apices lead, lead to more flowers and fruit. A saguaro can absorb and store considerable amounts of rainwater, visibly expanding in the process. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It reminds me of an accordion. <laughs> While slowly using the stored water as needed. This characteristic enables the soil to survive during periods of drought to keystone species and provides food and habitat to a large number of species, soils have been a source of foods and shelter for humans for thousands of years. Their sweet and fleshed fruits are turned into syrup by native people such as the Tona Otham and Pima. Their ribs are used as building materials in the wood poor deserts. This war character is a common image in Mexican culture and American Southwest films. Conservation, blah, blah, blah. Gila woodpecker. Woodpeckers are so cool. <laughs> Wow, this one has so many arms in this picture. It's a beautiful picture. <coughs> Yeah, this will be, this is a nice hangout. You could have, I could have like a dozen people here safely outdoors, social distancing, you know, it's like six feet apart. Yeah. Wow. Oh, Lord. What do you know? <laughs> hey, how come we haven't painted lately? Because, um, 
solve this thing and shit. I want to get, get this done, you know? Oh, yeah, you're, you're moving the house, house, yeah. Get the house. How much did you get done? Huh? How much did you get done? How much did I get done? Yeah, didn't you, uh, you went there today or yesterday? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, picking up stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, remind, I need to remind myself to order a couple more sheds. Order a couple more sheds. Put that one down there, and one, I think, over there. And we'll have more cabins. Yay. <laughs> Brilliant. More cabins. Tate bragging about whoa, classified whoa, whoa. records whoa. <laughs> and hiding in plain sights. Introducing critical thinking cards. This deck of cards features 48 of the most common lots. One day ago. Advertisers. I'm Ben Micellis from the Minus Touch Network, and this is a news alert. We are learning additional information right now about just how dangerously and irresponsibly Donald Trump has classified records. And one way we're learning this right now is through the release of an audiobook by legendary journalist Bob Woodward. And Woodward, who famously wrote the book on Donald Trump called Rage, conducted 19 lengthy interviews with Donald Trump in connection with that book. And Woodward next week is going to be releasing an audiobook called The Trump Tapes. Bob Woodward's 20 interviews with so President Trump and uh, in many of these tapes you see just how easy it was for Bob Woodward to get his hands on information that would be classified records. It would also show that Donald Trump had knowledge that he was sharing information that he shouldn't share as part of his vanity project for this book with Bob Woodward. One of the main pieces of information that is highlighted uh, in the uh, audio exchanges between Bob Woodward and Donald Trump is Donald Trump boasting about the letters he exchanged with Kim Jong-un. In all, there were approximately 27 letters that Donald Trump exchanged with Kim Jong-un. Weird, bizarre letters where they would describe how great each other, each other are and um, how... Uh, they how much were they and loved each other. Just really, really weird stuff. Um, <laughs> and first in 2019, Donald Trump shared the letters that he got with Kim Jong Un, which he had told Bob Woodward, "I'm not supposed to share this with you. This is, you know, top secret stuff. I'm giving to you, but I'm going to give it to you anyway." And then Bob Woodward asked in 2020, "Hey, can you actually give me the records of the uh, communications you sent?" Uh, and Donald Trump responded. That, quote, oh, those are so top secret um, that I can't give them to you. But then he did give those to Bob Woodward and allowed Bob Woodward to essentially transcribe uh, all of those letters um, as part of 
his book. Again, very, very, very unusual stuff. One of the things that Bob Woodward points out as an aside in the book is just how irresponsibly Trump would uh, handle these top secret records. And one of the things that uh, was pointed out, he writes, um, as an aside in the book, Woodward describes, quote, the casual, dangerous way that Trump treats the most classified programs and information, as we've seen now in 2022 in Mar-a-Lago, where he had 184 classified documents, including 25 marked top secret. Um, and that was in reference to Trump making statements about his weapon systems or what he claims were weapon systems that he helped develop uh, for the United States. And this is what he said about them. He said, quote, I have built a weapon system that nobody's ever had in this country before, he said, uh, referring to Russian Vladimir, President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi. Um, quote, we have stuff that you haven't even seen or heard about. We have stuff that Putin and Xi have never heard uh, before. We actually have, I think, the audio of that interview. Here, let's just play that audio right now for you. I have built a weapon system that nobody's ever had in this country before. We have stuff that you haven't even seen or heard about. We have stuff that Putin and Xi have never heard about before. Getting along with Russia is a good thing and a bad thing, all right? Especially because they have 1,332 nuclear warheads. In addition to that, one of the things that Trump constantly would repeat to Woodward was, again, his obsession with all of his conversations with Kim Jong-un. And uh, he would say, and this was completely debunked by all military analysts and all of our uh, intelligence agencies, but Trump would claim that Kim Jong-un had told him that Obama had tried to reach out to Kim Jong-un 11 times. And this is what Trump said. This is on the audio in his interviews with Bob Woodward. And he kept on saying this over and over again. He would tell Bob Woodward, quote, Obama called Kim Jong-un 11 times. Kim Jong-un showed me the records in Korea. I'm very close to this man. I'm very, very close to this man. He showed me it was 11 times. Obama wanted 11 times he tried. Kim Jong-un told me 11 times, like literally repeating it over and over again. And Bob Woodward would say, uh, it's widely known in our intelligence community that Kim Jong-un is someone who you can't trust. Kim, quote, lies through his teeth to you. Obama never made any attempts to speak with Kim himself. Kim Jong-un, Mr. Trump, is giving you bad information on that. It is not true. I don't think that's true, Woodward would tell Trump. And then Trump kept on repeating. Obama called 11 times. He wouldn't take Obama's call, but he would take my call, not Obama's call, uh, my call. Um, but given all we know right now about the search warrant executed at Mar-a-Lago, um, going back to what Bob Woodward said, the very casual, dangerous way that Trump treated classified records. I mean, here you have Bob Woodward, a journalist who is, you know, clearly trying as the journalist to, uh, you know, get his hands on as much material as he can to write this book. And Donald Trump just like very freely would share records that he shouldn't have shared, that he was not allowed to share as part of his vanity project, just whipping out these letters from Kim Jong-un and 
letting reporters copy it and then bragging about weapon systems to uh, Bob Woodward, you know, and it just makes you think as well about just how irresponsibly, and this is Bob Woodward's point, um, as he releases this uh, audio book, basically like, he gave me all these records, these classified records that I was able to easily transcribe. Just think about how irresponsible that is and was for anybody else who Trump in undoubtedly who would show up at Mar-a-Lago, who undoubtedly Trump would brag and show these letters and show them as trophies and just hand out our classified documents, you know, to whoever uh, wanted like party to favors. see them. I'm definitely going to, uh, I'm going to check out that, that audio book. Um, I do wish though, and the wish is probably too light of a word. You know, I, I am very frustrated in the media generally here um, that it takes a book to come out before information like this is revealed. And in order to sell books, this information is essentially, you know, hoarded. Um, I think it's vital that media reports on these things concurrently, contemporaneously, and not let fascism fester. And then um, in a post-mortem, after the nations endured such a great deal of suffering, uh, provide the context of what actually took place. I mean, I, I think that's irresponsible uh, journalism. But nonetheless, I'm happy that we're knowing about it now, and it's providing us with more information about Donald Trump's uh, criminal intent here, how it gives us support. And in addition to that, one of the things that Trump um, as an aside in the book, Woodward describes, quote, the casual, dangerous way that Trump treats the most classified programs and information, as we've seen now in 2022 in Mar-a-Lago, where he had 184 classified documents, including 25 marked top secret. Um, and that was in reference to Trump making statements about his weapon systems or what he claims were weapon systems that he helped develop uh, for the United States. And this is what he said about them. He said, quote, I have built weapon system that nobody's ever had in this country before, he said, uh, referring to Russian Vladimir, President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi. Um, quote, we have stuff that you haven't even seen or heard about. We have stuff that Putin and Xi have never heard uh, before. We actually have, I think, the audio of that interview. Here, let's just play that audio right now for you. If you drink coffee, do this every day. Ozone saved my life, my career. It... I have built a weapon system that nobody's ever had in this country before. We have stuff that you haven't even seen or heard about. We have stuff that Putin and Xi have never heard about before. Getting along with Russia is a good thing, it's a bad thing, all right? Especially because they have 1,332 nuclear <laughs> warheads. In addition to that, one of the things that Trump constantly would repeat to Woodward was, again, his obsession with all of his conversations with Kim Jong-un. And uh, he would say, and this was completely debunked by all military analysts and all of our uh, intelligence agencies, but Trump would claim that Kim Jong-un had told him that Obama had tried to reach out to Kim Jong-un 11 times. 
And this is what Trump said. This is on the audio in his interviews with Bob Woodward. And he kept on saying this over and over again. He would tell Bob Woodward, quote, Obama called Kim Jong-un 11 times. Kim Jong-un showed me the records in Korea. I'm very close to this man. I'm very, very close to this man. He showed me it was 11 times. Obama wanted 11 times he tried. Kim Jong-un told me 11 times, like literally repeating it over and over again. And Bob Woodward would say, uh, it's widely known in our intelligence community that Kim Jong-un is someone who you can't trust. Kim, quote, lies through his teeth to you. Obama never made any attempts to speak with Kim himself. Kim Jong-un, Mr. Trump, is giving you bad information on that. It is not true. I don't think that's true, Woodward would tell Trump. And then Trump kept on repeating. Obama called 11 times. He wouldn't take Obama's call, but he would take my call, not Obama's call, uh, my call. Um, but given all we know right now about the search warrant executed at Mar-a-Lago, um, going back to what Bob Woodward said, the very casual, dangerous way that Trump treated classified records. I mean, here you have Bob Woodward, a journalist who is, you know, clearly trying as the journalist to, uh, you know, get his hands on as much material as he can to write this book. And Donald Trump just like very repeating it over and over again. And Bob Woodward would say uh, it's widely known in our intelligence committee that Kim Jong-un over and 11 times. Kim Jong-un showed me the records. Jong-un showed me the record. And uh, he would say, and this was completely debunked by all military analysts and all of our uh, intelligence agencies, but Trump would claim that Kim Jong-un had told him that Obama had tried to reach out to Kim Jong-un 11 times. And this is what Trump said. This is on the audio in his interviews with Bob Woodward. And he kept on saying this over and over again. He would tell Bob Woodward, quote, Obama called Kim Jong-un 11 times. Kim Jong-un showed me the records in Korea. I'm very close to this man. I'm very, very close to this man. He showed oh, hey, me Laura, it was 11 times. Obama wanted Another 11 one. times he tried. Kim Jong-un told me 11 times, like literally repeating His it over and over with again. The North Korean and Bob dictator. Woodward would say... Uh, it's widely known in our intelligence community that Kim Jong-un is someone who you can't trust. Kim, quote, lies through his teeth to you. Mm -hmm. Obama never made any attempts to speak with Kim himself. Kim Jong-un, Mr. Trump, is giving you bad information on that. It is not true. I don't think that's true, Woodward would tell Trump. And then Trump kept on repeating. Obama called 11 times. He wouldn't take Obama's call, but he would take my call. Not Obama's call. But given all we know right now about the search warrant executed <clears throat> at Mar-a-Lago. Huh? You going to prison? Yep. Oh, Hot on the trail. Uh, Trump uh, going to jail. Finally, that motherfucker. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And, the, and all of his lackeys, too. Huh? I know it's lackeys too. Oh, give me that thing back. Uh, uh, put it in the mm. cup. Let me take it with me. Oh, lackeys? Yeah. 
Is that stand for lackadaisical? Cord. I brought you some fucking cord. Where's the midi, man? I thought you was going to be bumping the midi by now. Bump that thing. Bump that sucker. I didn't leave a phone up here, did I? That's got tape all over it and shit. Did I leave a phone around here with some tape on it? Bunch of tape. Hey, you, got any, um, you got any HG, bruh? I can smell it. I smell it. I smell something. No weed. You know, I found my um, pipe. Ben Mitty, I just, um, uh, ask Ben Mitty. He's got, what's he got? A couple buds that I gave him a couple days ago. Oh, he didn't smoke them. That are, might be dry enough. You got a piece for me? Make me pick one bud. Let's see if I can get high. All right. You got them? Not, okay. no, no. But, you know, actually, I should, um, Pick a couple buds and get some going, huh? Uh, let it finish. Are you gonna? It'd be better if it finished. Alright. Well, it'll hold uh, hold me until um, you get some good stuff. <laughs> what about the um? What about the screen? No screen. Screen. Yeah. What screen? Weren't you gonna? Oh, oh, you mean right here? Yeah. Oh. I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what I was thinking, but yeah, I want to finish this. I didn't, yeah, but it's. <laughs> you got my wood in the cage. A wood cage? My wood. In the cage over there. On the bar oh. with the birds. <laughs> so you're thinking he came in over here? I, I think. Well, right around that he was, he was up, up there. He's up there. I know, I mean, like, if you had had the fucking cameras up, or, you know. The cameras are up. The cameras are up. Here? Yeah, they're up. They're no, up back like, here. No, like, look out here. Well, I mean, I, I can't see I every, see this whole corridor. I can't see every see single angle. I can see, but not every single fucking angle. Not, I mean, not, like, they in a casino. We need more cameras. Yeah, well. So we can, um... So the neighbors can fucking bust into them and fuck them up. The two, the two front ones have... That's why I took them down, but I'm about to, I'm about to put them back up. I put a, put a firewall in front of them. Hey, here's our friend. Nice and quiet, Mr. Huh? He's gonna pick it up now. What up, dude? You think my life to go away? Oh, yeah, can we get some black... Um, black what? Paint? Can we get some black paint? Paint. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to paint this floor right here. I want to paint it like checkerboard, not white, but like uh, you know, like a tan maybe. Don't take etch it. The etch it. I told you, got to etch it first in order to, to do that because it just it'll all come up every bit of it. You put it down, it won't be take nothing but. It'll be pieces and patches coming off a whole 
because it's so much dirt, there's nothing to grab into. The paint has to have a pour. Mm-hmm. Like a pour in your face, it has to have the same thing. So we put the uh, put, put acid down, muriatic acid, and wash it. I mean, mm-hmm. it can do it, but then you could paint it with epoxy paint. One part mm-hmm. or two parts. Mm-hmm. It's still going to take epoxy paint to paint that. Mm-hmm. You want to paint checker paint? I mean, that's got to be like, how much you want to paint of it? Well, this, this, this Strip area. right there. And maybe... So if everything was moved out of the way, and I could come in here with a fucking muriatic acid pressure washer and get these birds up, you know what I mean? I could probably do it at night. Yeah. When they're all sleeping, and then because they don't care about the engine running while they're fucking sleeping, mm-hmm. or they'll just you know won't bother them. Uh, and then and then clean this, and then and then the next morning, you can't walk on it. That's the thing is you have to stay off of it because I have to let it dry. We could put a uh, we could put something down over top of it so it could walk on that for like a day, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like a. And then cardboard, cardboard be fine. Yeah, and then and then and then then the next day, the next night, you could paint it. By the time you wake up in the morning, you're walking it. Cool. What you want, like red and black? Next time I go or something, get some stuff. Red and black. Um, that'd be cool. Red, black, and tan. Well, checkerboard is red and black. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be black. It can be tan. Black but and tan. Red, black, and tan. We'll use the weather. Um, if if I uh, uh, use the red for something. We go back to my dungeon. We go back to my dungeon. Goddamn. Okay, dope. Okay, smoke. Uh, uh, uh. All right, dude. Cheerio. Down with this mum. Very, very, very close. Which is 
fascination with Obama obsession. Given all we know right now about this, he would say, and this was completely debunked by all military analysts and all of our uh, intelligence agencies. But Trump would claim that Kim Jong Un had told him that Obama had tried to reach out to Kim Jong Un eleven times. This is what Trump said. This is on the audio in his interviews with Bob Woodward, and he kept on saying this over and over again. He would tell Bob Woodward, quote, Obama called Kim Jong-un 11 times. Kim Jong-un showed me the records in Korea. I'm very close to this man. I'm very, very close to this man. He showed me records 11 times. times. He tried. Kim Jong-un told me 11 times. Like, literally repeating it. This romance with the North Korean dictator. Hashtag Washington Post investigative reporter. Hashtag Bob Woodward. New book talks about the weird brown man between Hitler, I mean Trump, and a brutal dictator of North Korea, exclamation point. Hashtag Kim Jong-un. Breaking occupy Democrats, but a security expert. 
knowing Trump was susceptible to flattery, comma, the dictator told him that Obama tried to call him 11 times, exclamation point, knowing Trump would brag about that, comma, over and over and over and over again exclamation point because hashtag Obama is a better comedian than Trump comma an exquisite comedian really exclamation points and one night at the White House correspondence dinner Barack Obama roasted Trumpy Donald Trump and he was really, really humiliated. Comma because one thing about Nazis is they can't take a joke. Exclamation point. And the um, enfant terrible, enfant terrible, there you go. Select all, select all, select, select. Come on, just uh, cut to the chase yourself, man. Okay, okay, I get it. <clears throat> I just want to tag people as a Democratic Party. Washington Post. Wonder if Bob Woodward has a TikTok account. <laughs> My bet is he doesn't. I think he's too distinguished to be on. This Bob Woodward, but I don't know if it's really him. 
under to him anyway. Because here we go. Oh, shit. Hey, like, what's the what? Hello, what do you do? Alouette, je dis alouette. In fact, that's probably why Trump ran for president, comma, to get back at Obama and prove him wrong, comma, that Trump wasn't just a fucking loser. But actually was. But actually he was, comma, of course, exclamation point. A fucking loser, that is. A fucking loser, comma, that is. Exclamation point, smiley face. Smiley face! <laughs> Alright, um, yeah. Oh, um, going back to what Bob Woodward said, the very casual, dangerous way that Trump treated classified records. I mean, here you have Bob Woodward, a journalist, who is, you know, clearly trying as the journalist to, uh, you know, get his hands on as much material as he can to write this book. And Donald Trump just, like, very freely would share records that he shouldn't have shared, that he was not allowed to share as part of his vanity project, just whipping out these letters from Kim Curry favor with the reporters copying and bragging Post. about weapon systems to uh, Bob Woodward, you know, and it just makes you think as well about just how irresponsibly, and this is Bob Woodward's point, um, as he releases this uh, audio book, basically like, he gave me all these records, these classified records that I was able to easily transcribe. Just think about how irresponsible that is and was for anybody else who Trump undoubtedly would show up at Mar-a-Lago, who undoubtedly Trump would brag and show these letters and show them as trophies and just hand out our classified documents, you know, to whoever uh, wanted to see them. I'm definitely going to, uh, I'm going to check out that, that audio like book. Like candy. Um, I do wish though, and wish is probably too light of a word. You know, I, I am very frustrated in the media generally here, um, that it takes a book to come out before information like this is revealed. And in order to sell books, this information is essentially, you know, hoarded, um, I think it's vital that media reports on these things concurrently, contemporaneously, and not let fascism fester. And then um, in a post-mortem, after the nations endured such a great deal of suffering, uh, provide the context of what actually took place. I think that's irresponsible uh, journalism. But nonetheless, I'm happy that we're knowing about it now.
spreading conspiracy theories about 9/11 talking about Bob Woodward Saudi Arabia and saying that we haven't got to the bottom of 9/11. I mean, just think about that. Trump is inviting Saudi Arabia to play golf, to host a golf tournament, uh, a propaganda golf tournament at Bedminster. Uh, spreading conspiracies about September 11th. At the same time, Saudi Arabia and the OPEC cartel is uh, harming our economy by raising uh, the price of crude significantly. Um, would you put it past him for a second? Sure, he's showing them our nuclear secrets. I'm sure he showed it already. I'm sure he's sharing our classified oh records. I mean, that's my opinion, of course, but would that surprise you that that's why Jared Kushner is getting uh, received $2 billion from the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund to manage that amount of money when he's never been a fund manager before? I mean, come on. I mean, if you think that's not what he's doing with those records, we all know that he's very, very transactional with everything that he does. And why else would he be taking our top secret documents and hoarding it and um, obstructing and lying? You know, one of the things that I find just so uh, astonishing, so scary, though, and dangerous about this whole process is how intimately involved Donald Trump was in hiding these records. You go back to January of 2022 with the first wave of documents that were turned over to the National Archives after the National Archives has been relentlessly demanding these records back for about six, seven months when it became abundantly clear that Trump just stole these records. It's like Trump himself was the person who had packed these boxes and cherry-picked the documents he wanted to return to the National Archives and lied and said that was everything that we got. The National Archives opens it up and, like, literally opens up newspaper clippings and sees top-secret sensitive compartmented information, <laughs> our nation's highest degree of classifications interspersed within, like, newspaper clippings. Like, Trump, like, hid him. He packed it himself. He hid the secrets, the top-secret sensitive compartmented information inside, like, newspapers. From dead people, 10,762. I'm sticking to that number. I am a former Republican, having left the party right around January 6th. Oh. <laughs> Whoops. What the hell? Come on, man. I that was you touring it for. No, it's Charles. Drifted off into sleep. <laughs> Precedes you, yes. No, I'm so focused. <laughs> Maybe I do. I don't know. I'm asleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't seen you snore. I haven't seen you snore like that. That's for dang sure. Who is that? Oh, that's... Hanky's a snore puppy. Oh. 
Let's see. Internet did not disturb. Accordion. Debris. Mm. What the hell's going on? Rats. That's weird. Crying after a big court loss. Breaking Trump news. Breaking Trump news. Let's see. Lawrence O'Donnell has been. Is Kerry Lake serious about secession? We need to fire the federal government. So, what will a lake secession cost you? Social Security and Medicare benefits, health insurance, six military bases closed. Kerry Lake secession ideas are seriously dangerous. Be okay financial. We go above <laughs> so you can go beyond. Those lawyers have proved that they don't know why they asked for a special master to examine the documents seized by the FBI with a search warrant at Donald Trump's residence in Florida. We finally have tonight specific legal claims about some of those documents being made by the Trump lawyers in the appropriately titled case Donald J. Trump versus United States of America. Those claims appear in a Justice Department filing with the special master tonight. That Justice Department filing describes to the special master remaining disputes regarding 15 documents. Air conditioning. This is politics and pros. Maggie Haberman, confidence man. So it's so amazing seeing such a, a large audience here. And um, you all clearly appreciate uh, how special it is to have uh, Maggie Haberman with us this evening. I I'm Brad Graham, by the way. I'm a co-owner of the bookstore along with with my wife, Lisa Muscatine. Um, um, you know, among all the journalists who've, who've co covered Donald Trump over the years, Maggie has done so uh, most extensively and um, now has produced a definitive book about Trump's life and presidency, a confidence and the making of Donald Trump and the breaking of America. A native New Yorker, Maggie got her start in political reporting with New York's two famed tabloids, the Daily News and The Post, then moved to Politico for a few years before landing at the New York Times in 2015 as a campaign correspondent. The Post. During Trump's presidency, she was Looking credited with, with countless scoops, and her book is filled with lots of, of fresh revelations. But as Joe Klein wrote in, in a review in, in The Times, more than the news nuggets, Confidence Man is notable for the quality of its observations about Trump's character and, and will undoubtedly serve as a primary source about the most vexing president in American history. <laughs> yes, uh, there's been um, uh, lots of previous, uh, believe me, uh, we in the book business are very grateful about that. Um, but but Maggie's, is, Maggie's is the whole package. It joins the story of how Trump came to be before he assumed the presidency with how he operated as president. It examines the influences that shaped Trump's personality and character and how those traits defined his presidency. 
In the prologue, Maggie recalls how after uh, covering Trump during the 2016 campaign, she received a note from a colleague um, when Trump won saying, this is great for you. She was, she, she was quite surprised, actually, if you can believe it, to see all of you here gathered for her. Um, but, you know, uh, her, her tough, uh, outstanding coverage also has made her a target of uh, Trump's attacks and, and other uh, even uglier stuff. Uh, so please understand why this evening um, we won't be having a, a signing line at the end. Uh, Maggie has pre-signed a, a lot of uh, other copies uh, for anybody who's, who's interested uh, afterwards uh, up at the um, checkout desk. Uh, Maggie doesn't do many in-person appearances, which makes us appreciate all the more her presence here this evening. We're also grateful to have CNN's Caitlin Collins moderating the event. As White House correspondent for the network, she's had her own many experiences covering Trump. Uh, and as a sign of uh, her rising star in broadcasting, it was announced earlier this month that she'll soon be co-anchoring a revamped CNN morning show. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Maggie Haberman and Caitlin Collins. on a Friday night, right? <laughs> I'm like really appreciative. Audience questions that I've been reading through as well. Um, thank you all for being here so much. Obviously, this is really special for me personally because um, I started covering the White House when Trump took office. Any White House reporter of that time will tell you, point blank, Maggie is hands down the best White House reporter, the best Trump reporter of that era. And that is not an easy feat in a time when it was all-consuming of your life, of Twitter, of everything. And so it's an honor for me to be here moderating this event, reading this book, and getting to ask you about it. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, really, thank you all for coming. I feel a little like I'm at my own funeral, but I'm very grateful <laughs> to see you all here uh, for it. Um, well, and... it's going to be a packed up. So. Um, there have been a lot of Trump books, obviously, during the Trump years, a lot of scoops, a lot of stories, a lot of things that you read and you're like, can this really be true? Yours, those talked about what he did while he was in office and as a candidate. Yours talked about why he did it. What made you take that approach? So I, I tried to look at both, honestly. I tried to look at how the why he did it informed the what he did. And I... I took that approach for a couple of reasons. One is, to your point, there's a lot of Trump books out there. They've they've been filled with scoops. They have been things that have left me kicking myself. I wished I had had them. Um, you know, they, they informed a lot about that time in office, and he is one of the most written about people on the planet. Um, the, the perspective that I could offer is somebody who came from the same place he did, saw a lot of the same forces in a city that was really mired in dysfunction and corruption touching almost every aspect of the life, the life that he was involved with uh, while he came up. And, and I had covered him and been around him prior to the fact that he was, uh, to him becoming a candidate in 2015. Um, and I think the pages of this book, one of the audience question was, um, that I loved was, when you were writing the book, and this is from a student, so thank you for submitting it. When you were writing the book, 
what was your initial goal, initial message, and, and did it change at all as you were writing it, or did as you write it, it kind of only confirm what you had suspected? It's an excellent question. Thank you for asking it. Uh, it, it. It confirmed what I suspected. I think it, it's just the degree to which the patterns were so visibly made uh, a long, long, long ago. Um, you know, not just the pattern of saying, you know, not paying cable, uh, you know, stiffy contractors, and uh, trying to get media attention. But the beginning, this was the thing that actually I would say did surprise me. The first time I interviewed somebody who uh, told me that he asked them in 1990s, you know, what do you think of Blumenbach, this other person who worked for him? Because as we know, this was something he did in his 80s throughout his time in the White House. And just the fact that literally every behavior pattern had existed for decades, just unchanged and, and sort of frozen in this. Yeah, that really struck out to me. All of these themes of his life in New York that he brought to the presidency from his childhood, from his early years in the family business, his obsession with loyalty, feuding with Jerry Nadler, who later impeached him, warning people not to take notes in their meetings. You write that a junior attorney was just taking notes in a meeting and he came himself. around, yeah. He came around and picked up the notes over the guy's shoulder. It, it really was amazing. And then you, you write that when he was damaged in the press by his bankruptcies, by his divorces, the one thing he could not get that he valued on a cellular level was laudatory media coverage. I have never encountered somebody who experiences media coverage the way he does. And I, I think you would agree with that as somebody who's covered him for a while now. The, the, the stories that would repulse other people he revels in it. And so I, I write about one instance, um, you know, this was this was an infamous story. I worked at the New York Post for a combined 10 years, uh, and, and that's part of the, the milieu that informed him, uh, was his desire to get coverage there, and his sort of transactional relationship with the paper. Um, I'm sorry it's so hot. I apologize. Um, but uh, I, he, there was this one story that's a famous front page, which was, you know, when he was having an affair with Marla Maples, and he was with Ivanka Trump, and the headline was best sex I ever had. Um, she didn't actually say it. It was it was basically a confection by uh, a guy who used to sit literally directly across from me. Um, and it was a, it was a famous story in the newsroom that he was talking to a friend of hers and, and he said, you know, I, I, I bet if the sex is good too, right? And the friend said, yeah, that's best sex she's ever had, I guess, right? I guess that became best sex I ever had. And you know, Marla Maples was said to really not like that headline. Trump. I wonder why. Yes. Um, which is a understandable reaction. Trump loved it because it was sort of proof of his strength and virility. And so uh, he just experiences coverage in a, in a different way because it's all attention and he seeks out getting attention. And I remember talking to people the first time in the White House, they couldn't really get over the degree to which even as a sitting president, he tried to construct media opportunities daily. And can I just point out, I wasn't going to get to this till later, but part of the book that I was just like, okay, which is, you know, kind of rare to do. You said that whenever he was in the hospital with Marla Maples after his daughter Tiffany was born, that a tabloid reporter, had been, photographer had been invited in. They wanted to get a picture of the newborn baby, but because the baby was a newborn baby, that he ended up taking a pile of blankets and posing with it. There was no baby. So, <laughs> right? So this was uh, Linda Stasi, who's another former colleague, um, and, and she covered television forever. Uh, she was at both the Post and the News. And she's another one of these tabloid figures who, you know, knew Trump, interacted with him over and over again. Um, Marla has the baby in Florida. And this is actually sort of a revealing anecdote about him in a different way, too. She 
she calls, she's pressured by her editor, you have to get a, a picture of the baby. And Trump says, no, I don't understand why she would do that. No, that's not going to work. And she says, but I'm going to get fired. And he says, all right, fine. Because there is this kind of people-pleasing thing, and he doesn't want to totally offend a reporter. So she comes down, she goes to the hospital, and she comes into the room, and Marla Maples says to Trump, what is she doing here? And Linda says, I came to see the baby. And, you know, can we get a picture? And Marla says, no, and leave. And so they go into the hallway, and there's a stack of, you know, in the hospitals, they have those stacks with receiving blankets, and he takes a bunch of them, and he craps a fake baby. And he says, you know, he invites her to take a picture, and he says, no, I'll never know. And she, the picture was taken, they didn't use it, and I think it's, it doesn't exist in the Daily News archives anymore. Um, but that was, a, that was a story that I was a little surprised by when I learned about it, yeah. I, I truly was kind of, I, I was like taking notes for this, and I was like, I cannot believe what I'm writing down, but... Speaking of that, this is another great question that I loved. Um, is it hard to refrain from psychoanalyzing Trump while reporting on Trump? Um, it is not hard. Um, the uh, <laughs> we we get pushed to a lot, and I actually have tried to resist that. I think there's a difference between analyzing why he does something versus putting it on the couch, right? I mean, I think there's plenty, and, and there's a long history of analyzing presidents this way. Bill this way forever. You know, Obama's emotional state was examined at a, you know, HW's was, W's was. Um, it, it's different with Trump because the behaviors just are so not within a normal frame um, of, of anyone who's lived in Washington and anyone who's been around presidents. Um, that there is that desire to do that. I don't find it hard to avoid it because that's not my job. Two things in the book stood out to me. Also, when it comes to a lot of the book, which I found so interesting was that it, it talks about what fuels his rise and where, how we got where we are. And I think that's such an important thing to reflect on, especially ahead of the next election. You talk about the press coverage he got in the 80s and the 90s and how people just kind of let him lie and move on. You said, quote, some reporters acknowledged privately over time that they knew Trump lied a lot, and yet for years, many of his statements ran unchecked in print and on television because the impulse for reporters to give a subject the benefit of the doubt and the difficulty of disproving some of his claims gave way to so many how does he do it folks kind of stories and that in part helped shape his public perception for voters absolutely i mean i, I think we we have all heard lots of criticism of the media in the last seven years um some of it absolutely valid i think some of it less so but a lot of the criticism focused on 2015 and 2016 and the, the presidential campaign and i know that there you know has been all kinds of complaints about the coverage of the rallies, you know, on cable. I would make the argument that actually the un, the uncut version of Donald Trump, like you're actually doing voters a service because they can see the full thing and they can decide what they want. Um, news process has actually often benefited him, especially in newspapers, because the way we write stories is we, we take a quote. We don't take the, you know, the eight graphs where he's saying contradictory things back and forth and so forth. And, we, and to that end, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, by brick, news story by news story, build this artifice of this mega tycoon, uh, you know, a commensurate on a level with, you know, major figures of the day, when he just wasn't. And, you know, people either uh, wanted him because they thought he was a good quote, or because they just accepted it and there was no way to, to prove it, but he got the benefit of the doubt over and over. You know, I, I write about how he exists in these three different bits of time, because there's the difference. How the big 
beginning of The Apprentice also benefited that. You, you write about how you talked to a voter and you kind of thought you were deciding, like, are you here for the show to see Trump, see a Trump rally, see what it's like? And they completely serious said no. They said they were going to actually vote for him in the caucus because he was a successful businessman. But you write, and I found this fascinating, that when he was beginning The Apprentice, producers went to his, to his par- properties and they, they thought they'd run up to par for a television set. They actually kind of fixed them up. So people's mentality of him as this savvy businessman with these amazing properties was actually constructed by a, a camera crew. There is so much illusionary around him, and Mark Burnett, who uh, created The Apprentice, was was a, a, an Art of the Deal superfan. And the Art of the Deal was his book, Trump's book in 1987, which he which was ghostwritten by an author named Tony Schwartz, who has been a very vocal critic of Trump over the last uh, six years, uh, and who has said that he really uh, being a part of it, but you know that book, and I just as a, a quick aside, you know that book was very much written by Tony, and it contained the line, uh, you know, the Trump uses "quote unquote" truthful hyperbole. That's that's not what he uses. That's I mean, he just says things that are true. Um, but a book that was much more authentic to Trump, for those of you who just want to get a sense of the difference between the myth making and the non myth making, and I write about this, is a book that Trump wrote called "Surviving the Top." And this was uh, after he had gone through his, his you know, personal problems, his financial problems. And it's, it's so weird. I mean, you know, he, he, he talks about, uh, you know, uh, Malcolm Forbes, who had just passed away and who was a closeted gay man, and how repulsed he was that people in the media were covering for him. I mean, it was really the, the change in tone from these books was the clearest sort of reminder that actually someone else is writing this. And it was a precursor to what we saw in the White House with, here's teleprompter Trump, here's Twitter Trump, right? Which Guess which one was more real? So when we get to The Apprentice, Mark Burnett, who is a super fan of the book, creates a character of Donald Trump, basically, based on this book. And they use his properties, and they discover what you know, one, of the, one of the people involved in the show described as you know, a savvy empire. You know, the casinos let people run down, um, they had seen better days, the, the boardroom in the actual Trump Tower had used its Right, so they built a set, but people saw that and they believed it was real. And I was not an apprentice watcher, so this was a phenomenon I didn't understand until I went to Iowa and I was asking a very leading question of people in this rally in Dubuque, which was basically, are you are you here because this is the show is going to leave town soon? Because everybody, you know, at the polls at that point showed that Ted Cruz uh, ahead, Trump had been struggling. Um, or Ben Carson was ahead. And folks, one after the other, said that they were going to caucus for him, including one guy who looked at me like I had AIDS when I asked the question. And he said, I watched him run his business. And he meant his television. They obviously love Trump. You go to a Trump rally and you stand in line for hours. I've been to ones where it's snowing, raining, the weather's terrible, it's late on a school night. A great question that I love that someone asked, how does Trump actually feel about his support? Um, that's an excellent question that um, that comes up in the book. Um, you know, Trump requires a, a constant stream of praise and adulation from people around him, and so he likes that part of his supporters. He definitely sees a market with the supporters. This is a guy who's been branding himself since the 1980s. He refers to himself in third person um, you know, frequently, um, but he also can be very disparaging about his customers and his. Supporters. And I, I write about this in the book that he, you know, uh, he, w- 
was he was coming down an escalator at one of the casinos and said to a, a consultant who worked for him, "Look at those losers." Um, you know, he he would talk about his supporters' you know energy for him once he was in office, and he would say to one of the House aides, "They're effing crazy." I mean, you know, he's um, one of the things that he did uh, after the January sixth riot was he was dismissive to some aides about how how they looked or how the rioters looked. And it's hard to tell on something like that if he's just doing that to spin and to try to distance himself versus whether he actually thought it. Um, but he has said enough, you know, sort of, can you believe um, Can you believe these people? Versions of that, that it, it does give you a window into how he thinks. And he looks down on them. At least in moments, yeah. Times. yeah. Obviously, he has a lot of investigations surrounding him right now. Obviously, he's not any stranger to that. You, you write about that in the book, how growing up, days in New York, he would try to strong arm the SEC or, or find, kind of bulldoze his way to get what he wanted. And he brought that to the Oval Office and to the presidency, really. And one of the lines about his attorneys now and his attorneys then really stuck out to me, right? He was being deposed in the end of the 2000s in a lawsuit against Tim O'Brien when you said that his attorneys realized he simply could not be coached out of saying whatever he wanted to writing his own script as he went along. I would assume that his attorneys right now who are working on the Mar-a-Lago case, on the January 6th investigations, would say, yeah, I agree with that. Yes, and then some of them would say, yes, <laughs> and others would say, this is this is not good. Um, and and that that split and that that schism within his circle of advisors and lawyers or, you know, uh, political advisors, financial advisors, is a hallmark of whatever he time. But it is true that that lawsuit and the deposition that he gave in that lawsuit was incredibly revealing about, you know, he talked about how he makes mental projections on what his golf courses were worth. Um, it was a, it was a, it was a reminder. And Tim O'Brien won that suit. I just Which said, he said that it depended on his feelings. Depended on his, his, net, his net worth depended on his feelings. Goes up, goes down. Um, this is in a deposition. In a deposition. And, and so I, I and, and his lawyer's realized that there were, there were challenges around, you know, getting him to stick within certain lines. Um, where this became a really, I think, important and telling and, and, and precursor moment was when the Mueller investigation is happening in 2017. And when Mueller is first appointed, remember this is after James Comey was hired, Trump tells his lawyers he wants to be, literally, like, go across the street and go talk to Comey. And one of the things I explore here is how wasn't just bulldozing regulators, although there was certainly a lot of that. There was also a lot of trying to charm people who oversaw him, or prosecutors, or public officials. Uh, one of the one of the most surprising pieces uh, of reporting for me, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with New York's legal system, so I apologize for this uh, little little diversion. But Robert Morgenthau was the Manhattan District Attorney forever, and Trump developed this relationship. Morgenthau was the person whose office, you know, other than the federal prosecutors, most closely oversaw Trump's businesses, and Trump made a point of, of turning him into a friend, and Trump said to me, I asked him, would you still be happy, would you have these issues that you're facing right now if Morgenthau was still in office? Morgenthau left office and passed away a while ago, and Trump said, no, Bob Morgenthau was a friend of mine, Bob Morgenthau would not have stood for this, and that said a lot to me about everything that we have seen in terms of his actions. You know what that kind of reminds me of is when he called House Speaker Pelosi when he she was going to impeach him over the Ukraine stuff. He, he 
tried to call her to convince her not to come to the meeting. He tried to he tried to call her, and then he talked about suing Congress because he thought that the Supreme Court was going to decide this. Um, because those are those are the things he understands. You know, he, he volunteered a story to me uh, during one of our interviews about how many interviews did you do? With three. Him? Thank you for asking. Um, three interviews last year. Um, he volunteered a story to me about how he had tried to get Mario Cuomo to arrange for, you know, Andrew Cuomo, when Andrew Cuomo was the HUD secretary and Trump needed some help on one of his projects, he basically wanted Mario to make some connection for Trump. And when Cuomo, when Mario wouldn't do it, Mario Cuomo was the former governor of New York and somebody to whom Trump had given lots of contributions over the years, um, Trump got very angry and, and, and tried to get him, you know, he tried, tried to get him fired. It's, and he's just telling me this as if this wasn't going to raise some eyebrows. And so, but this is how he sees the world. What were your three interviews with him like? Uh, so they were overall five hours. The, um, the first... Uh, Where the, were they conducted? The first two were at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, one was in March and one was in April. Uh, the one in March, he was in pure salesman mode. Um, you know, he sitting with almost every author who wrote a book at that point, including Michael Wolff, who wrote the first um, less than flattering account of the Trump White House. And, and it said, uh, you know, it, it was it was consistent with what we were all reporting at the time, but it was the first book-length report about it. And so, you know, he was in, he was in salesman mode. He was trying to charm. He was well aware of the fact that, uh, you know, January 6th had left an enormous stain on his legacy. And, and I don't, I think, this I don't think was something he thought about at all, that country. That wasn't something he wanted to talk about, but he did, he was, you know, he wanted to talk about the old days in New York, and he, he was bitter about Biden, but not viscerally the way we've seen since. He, he made, it was right after Biden had that incident where he was tripping up the steps to Air Force One, and Trump said something to the effect of, do you, do you really think I lost to the guy who fell up the stairs? And that was actually, I thought, him less about Biden, more about him. him. Correct. And so, but it was not, we, it was, he wasn't talking you know, about Fraud, or you know, the election. He, he, he was insisting that he didn't really lose, but it wasn't as vociferously as it became. And then a few weeks later, I went back down for a follow-up, and uh, he was in a terrible mood. And he had—I found out later that he had apparently been dragging some of his employees around Mar-a-Lago, showing them messed up plaster and various spots in the wall. That and you wanted to fix before you came. Right? No, no. That's, these were not related. Um, these were, these were, these were. I these, do that too at my house. These, to be who, fair. who among us? I, I think mean, I can fix all my problems before anyone yes, shows up. Yes, I was actually going to do a perimeter walk. So, <laughs> um, but uh, I, he was in a terrible mood, and he he immediately started out talking about what was front of mind for him at that point, which was that so-called audit of Arizona, which was being done by, um, I think it was conservatives who you know were trying to challenge the results of the election. Their so-called audit ended up affirming that Joe Biden won ultimately. Um, but he, he kept saying he was watching it very closely. I found out later he had tried getting the Republican National Committee to pay for that audit. Uh, and he was in a terrible mood, and he was incredibly critical of Sidney Powell, which was interesting to me. Uh, and it, it, it prompted one of the more – there's these moments where he just sort of reads the stage directions out loud. Uh, and so I was um, – I asked him why he had trusted Sidney Powell the way he did, and meaning, you know, he was going to make her special counsel, and he was really keeping her advice. And he said something to the effect of, I, I wouldn't have, you know, had I known what she would say recently, which was in response to this um, lawsuit against her, um, a defamation lawsuit, where she basically said in response to an election, I think it was Dominion, uh, 
which protested her, her claims about the machines, she basically said, you know, why would anyone take me seriously? I couldn't believe what I had to say. And he said, that is so demeaning for her to say about herself. And he said, all she had to do was take all these news stories, and he, and he, and he emphasized it and said, he really hoped that I put this in the book. Um, the, all she had to do, and I, and I did, all she had to do was say, uh, you know, upon information and belief, and then point to all these news stories about, you know, election fraud. That's all she had to do. And it was like sitting with the ghost of Roy Cohn. It was like, I mean, he literally, who was his, you know, his mentor and fixer, his first one. Um, that was a, that was an interesting moment. And then the, the third one was in September of 2021. And it was the second time, it was at Bedminster. Wanted to talk. Uh, Lindsey Graham was at the club. Was supposed to have dinner with Trump. He kept sending someone to get Trump to come upstairs for dinner, and Trump wouldn't. He just and he, and he seemed sort of amused that Lindsey Graham was desperately not, trying to get him to right, come down not to happy dinner. about it. Right, and so, um, and he just kept talking and talking and talking and talking, and and he still wanted to go backwards with what he wanted to do. And at one point, I asked him, you know, I have some questions to ask you about twenty twenty four. Was as if why why would we do that? When you go into an interview like that and you have a list of questions and topics you want to hit, years off course so much. I remember once I'm in a coronavirus briefing and in the middle of the pandemic, I asked about ventilators and the question veered off to the Middle East and I was sitting there like, did I ask the wrong? Did I black out and ask the wrong question? Like I couldn't remember. And so when you go in there, how do you how do you make sure you're talking about the talk about and not just him relitigating 2020 or certain topics that you want to hit? So it's, I would answer that question two ways. One is, I actually, something you asked him once in one of those briefings is something I think about a lot about one of the best ways to ask the question, which was, he had cited some fact, and I don't remember what it was, but it wasn't true. And you said, that's not true. Who told you that? And it was a great question. It was It was one of the, it was one of the, the Our friend Olivia Nuzzi is in the house. She knows what it was. That was... <laughs> He said when he was president, when you're president, you have absolute, absolute That's power, what it was, yes. Authority. That's absolute, absolute power. Um, that was something. Anyway, so, um, uh, but I thought the way you handled that was spectacular, and I thought it was a real model for how you sort of turn something and, and get him to actually focus. It's hard. I mean, sometimes letting him talk does yield something. So, for instance, the Sidney Powell stream of consciousness yeah. was very interesting. Um, you know, there were a couple of other moments that, that, were, that were like that. But sometimes you have to just interrupt him and say, you know, I want to go back to blah, blah. And sometimes he will jolt back. Uh, one of those times, and I, I read about this, he was going, he was talking for a very long time about how the city of New York had tried to cancel his contract to, on a Bronx golf course that he leases and, and that he finished the renovation of. And so we, we literally did like five minutes on this, and I'm just listening. And I, so I, I tried redirecting and he and he cut me off, and he said something like, "Let me just finish this, and then I'm gonna and then I'm gonna tell him." And I said, "Okay." And then he said, "He said, let me just like let me just finish." And I, I said, "Yeah." And he sort of heard himself, and he he looks at his two aides who are in the interview, and he says, and he gestures to me, and he says, "I love being with her. She's like my psychiatrist." And it doesn't mean anything. This is a line that is intended to flatter. This is something he has said about a number of things. He says. But it was um, it was indicative of just how much he was working it out in real time in front of everyone, and in that moment he just needed to talk. Um, 
So sometimes redirecting him works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes he's whipped up in such a terrible mood that, you know, and you know this, you, you can't get an answer. Um, but my approach to this, honestly, for this book project was there were things only he could answer, and I needed to ask those questions. Did you try to interview him any time after the third time? Um, no, because then I reported in February that he had been flushing documents down the toilet in the White House, and that was not seen as a fan, fan favorite, so no, that was that. But I, there is one question I wish I had asked him, um, Which is? and, and I, I started thinking about it recently, and, and I don't even know that I would have gotten the truth, but it still would have been interesting what he said. Did he ever consider a taping system in the White House? And the reason that I wish I had asked that is, uh, and I don't think he would have said yes, uh, and, I, and I, I've been told by everyone that no such thing existed. Um, but A, he has a Nixon vaccination. We kept talking about Nixon in our interviews. Nixon wrote him letters. This was a, a big thing for a while. Um, and he, he, he sort of courted that relationship. Um, and he liked comparing his impeachment to Nixon's near impeachment. That was another one. He told me he was having a great time during his impeachment. Nixon's was a dark time. Um, but also, there was all, Trump was always notoriously described as taping when he was, you know, at Mar-a-Lago, there were I, in his campaign offices in 2016. Aides thought they were being bugged. So I just I wish I had asked that question. I'm sure you'll have the chance again. We'll see. Uh, I do want to talk about Twitter because this has been such in the headlines, and I'll get to my question on that. But one of the best parts of the book was you talked about when Trump first got his Twitter account, and people were trying to encourage him to use it. It was this new thing. They were saying that you could get more engagement if you interacted with people. And then he realized he could just tweet on his own. It didn't have to be a, an aide saying, actually, this is a good idea for you to tweet about. And Justin McConaughey compared when Trump realized that he could tweet himself without any engineering or planning behind it, that it was like in Jurassic Park when the dinosaurs learned they can open the doors themselves. Um, Trump's Twitter feed went from being sort of a source of amusement to people who worked for him to a source of sort of daily horror. Um, and, uh, and that obviously continued in the White House. Um, one of the, uh, the things that I found in my reporting was that he, he spent an incredible amount of time trying to figure out what engaged people on Twitter. So uh, this woman, Meredith MacGyver, who worked for him and became famous because she was the one who supposedly plagiarized from Michelle Obama's speech at the convention. That Melania Trump delivered, um, but she. It seems like so long. It, it seems like a very long time ago. She sent um, an email to Sam Lumber, who was an aide who was working with uh, Trump at the time, who worked on his Twitter feed a lot and suggested a lot of tweets. Um, and she said, you know, he's been looking at this and he's been realizing that you know the stuff about New York doesn't really get attention. You know, the global things get more attention. And he noticed this has more retweets and like. And it was, it was wild just how much time was being spent on this. Um, and for him, it, it was ultimately a perfect medium, right? I mean, he could just stir up a controversy, and he could scream at someone and walk away. And, and more importantly, everything looks flat to him as Sam Lumber. And he is a man who is honestly devoid of context. You know, I mean, one of the things that I thought about a lot after my interviews with him, I asked him about um, Nita Esposito, who was the deeply corrupt former Brooklyn Democratic Party chair, machine boss politician, who Trump's father was close with. Um, and Trump had ties to. And Trump described, um, Trump was incredible, like, talked about him as if he was talking about a hero. And he said, Meade ruled with an iron fist. It's the same language he uses about Xi Jinping. 
It's just that, you know, the, the, the idea of strength stays the same. It just Well, he's impressed by it, and it doesn't occur to him that not every sudden is just like a regular seven, which is why Twitter was so good for him. Do you think he would get back on Twitter if Elon Musk allows him to get back on Twitter? There is zero doubt in my mind that he would come back to Twitter, even though I know he has said he has He has said he would not get back on Twitter. People want me to. I must. This is a really interesting question. Um, has anyone who is anti-Trump, a reader, reacted to parts of your book thinking differently or maybe admiring Trump a little bit? Boy, if they have, I haven't written them. They haven't written you? <laughs> you know, I want to talk about you a little bit because you have said in a few interviews that you've done about this book, which is accepted in order to read it, that you don't think he's obsessed or fixated on you particularly. You think it's the New York Times. I don't think that's true. Why, why do you think that? Because I think that he's a credentialist. I mean, think about how much time he spent obsessing about AIDS who went to Harvard, um, you know, or, or how much he talks about the Wharton School of Finance. I think that the New York Times looms exceptionally large for him in his psyche. Um, I would urge all of you, I don't know if you're Daily listener, The Daily, the New York Times podcast, yay, shaking. We love The Daily, we love Michael Barbaro. Um, there was a, an really, I thought, revealing episode uh, in, I think, February 2019, which emerged from an interview that my colleague Peter Baker and I did with Trump that our publisher, A.G. Salzberger, uh, was with us for. It's because Trump had, had been trying to sort of woo A.G., who is who is a, a terrific, terrific newspaper man, and wouldn't do it unless it was an interview and we were on the record. And at some point in this back and forth, Trump says, He's complaining about our coverage, which every president does. But he, he said, I think I'm entitled to a good story from Donald Trump. And if you want to know what Donald Trump really thinks of the New York Times, that's it. And so he is, he is a boy from the outer boroughs of New York City uh, who sees himself as an outsider and views the New York Times as the pinnacle of attention and the paper that he wanted respected. And, and, and that's it. You were better primed to cover him than probably anyone else in the New York Times because of you knew all of this stuff about him growing up in New York and how that shaped him and changed him in a way that caught a lot of other reporters off guard. I, I just think the fact that I had worked in the tabloids probably helped him um, in, a, in a different way. Um, but uh, And I had covered him pretty intensely in 2011 when he considered running for president more seriously than he went on. So I'm obsessed with this also because you talk about how you were covering him and taking him seriously in 2012, 2011, and you think he was actually running. And you said you were somewhat aggravated when he announced that he wasn't running because you had treated it as a somewhat serious proposition. You felt like you, people thought you were gullible for the coverage you gave him and that you were concerned that you were manipulated into elevating his profile. I was in the same way that, you know, I, I look back at a lot of coverage and, you know, we're doing our jobs, but, um, you know, this is a person who, but let me answer it a different way. Uh, part of why he got so much coverage in 2011 was that he was spreading this lie about President Obama, being born in, maybe born in Kenya, which was a lie that he had been nurturing privately for a while. You know, I write about how uh, he gave his speech at, at CPAC in February of 2011, and Matt Strawn, then the Iowa GOP chairman, is watching the reaction to the speech and decides we've got to have that guy at, at, our, at our June fundraising dinner. Um, 
I disagree with you there. I think he's a subject who I can overcome. 
Um, I covered Hillary Clinton. I covered Mike Bloomberg. I covered Rudy Giuliani um, in his final term in, in office at City Hall and then his presidential campaign and then versions of him in the last several years. Uh, I covered at more of a remove Presidents Clinton, Obama, uh, W. Um, now he just interprets coverage differently. I don't, I, I just, the word relationship, I think, is not. The relationship to, I think, I think he thinks of you in a certain singular way that separates you from the other, and I just don't think that that's true. I don't. I, I don't. I mean, I think he's obsessed with the times, and I think that's, that's not true. Maybe some Times reporters would disagree with you. <laughs> times reporters who wish they had a book. Um, this is Lots a good, of Times reporters with a book. We're doing okay. This is a question not from the audience, but from someone who worked in the Trump White House who I was speaking to, and I said, you know, you could ask Maggie a question. What would you ask? And they said, what is a common misconception about Trump that has informed, that you understand, that has informed your approach to covering him? That's an excellent question. Uh, one is that he's more strategic than he is. Um, you know, there is this desire to overlay strategy on everything he does. I got, I literally got asked the question every single day in a meeting during the presidency, why is he doing this? And and the one that has come up more recently, the version is, why did he take these documents, right? And so we're going to work, we clearly don't have the answer to that, but I have some theories as to you. Um, so that's one. There was a great line in a BuzzFeed story uh, during the presidency, and I think it was by Tarini Party, where she quoted an anonymous Trump aide saying that, some, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was everyone thinks that he's playing 3D chess, but more often not, than not, he was just eating Pringles. And so, um, a great quote. It was a great quote, and it was a real quote. And so, um, and it's it's all due to sort of the myth making, right? I mean, part of what he's been doing for 40 years is building this version of himself as this genius, you know, both as a business genius, which he was not, um, and both as a mega tycoon, which he was not. But the thing is, there's enough real to a physical building that's a giant building on Fifth Avenue. People look at that, especially outside of New York City, and they're like, I don't know, that's a big building. Looks like he did something. So uh, it becomes hard to explain to people that you know he's not as rich as other people. He's still richer than most people. So that's that's one thing. Um, he is more calculating than most people are, and that is different than strategic. Um, he is not able to do a long term with anything, but he is. No, he's really not. I mean, I don't. I don't. Uh, it doesn't mean that he won't find a way, but um, but he doesn't plan. Um, but he but what he can do is hunker down and refuse to move off of something. That was his strategy. Um, but he is often playing some kind of game with people and with events that's apparent only to him. Um, one of the things that Bill Barr told people when when he left the White House, and I heard this from Bill Barr, this was the Trump denial that he that he realized the most. Um, and, and it takes a bit to understand sort of the, the games he's playing. Speaking of the documents, someone wants to know, why do you think Trump is holding on to some of these documents still? Why? Um, no, it's, I mean, I... I the Justice Department wants to know. The Justice Department is also... <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe they're here. <laughs> so we reported last night, I think that you guys did too, that um, you guys being CNN did too, that uh, the, the Justice Department told his lawyers a couple weeks ago that they think he still has more documents. And so, uh, uh, one of the... You asked him about this Well, no. during your interviews. You what, what, yeah, let me, let me say what I actually asked him, though, because this has gotten a little, a little mischaracterized and by a little bit of a lot mischaracterized. I, um, I asked him on a lark, did you take any memento documents? I asked him this in September 2021. And I asked him because he had been 
leaving these Kim Jong-un letters around at people in the Oval Office for a really long time, you know, because and dignitaries were reporters. I mean, these were sensitive things. Um, were they nuclear secrets? No. Um, but they were, um, they were not for public consumption. And so I asked him, and he said, nothing in great urgency, no. So his immediate impulse was to say no. And then he starts talking about the Kim Jong-un letters. And he's, he seemed to be saying, maybe it was completely mushy. Maybe he, I couldn't understand what he was saying. But I said, oh, you want me to take this with you? And he kept talking, which I thought was some kind of affirmation. He said, wow, or huh, or something. And he, registering my surprise, said, no, no, I think those are in the archives. Uh, you know, but we have great things. I just, I don't know what to do with that, especially with somebody who often doesn't tell the truth. Um, so I, you know, he hadn't given letters back to the archives at that point. Um, the letters had been the subject much later of communications between these officials and um, the archivists. Um, but it's much more interesting to me as a comic now, in hindsight, after what we know since August 8th, which was the FBI raid on the front line. And that his first instinct was to say, say no. no. Correct. I know we only have five minutes left. I have two more questions for you. Some of the best and most revealing parts, I feel like, when it comes to movies are the bloopers at the end and, and being able to see what it was really like for them to film them. Is there anything that you didn't include in this book that you wished you had or that didn't really fit or, or that didn't match the series tone? And the answer is an emphatic yes. Um, I will tell you two stories. Um, okay. In most cases, it was stuff that I could either couldn't confirm or not that I felt comfortable with. Um, in some cases, it just didn't. You think when you're going to get a book, I don't know how I'm going to fill it. And then you're like, oh my God, I'm going to have to cut this and this and this. It's a pretty, really long book. Um, so I, I, at a certain point, you can't keep having the same, the same version of an anecdote over and over again. I heard um, two stories after uh, after I had finished the book that I wouldn't include. And one is H.W. <clears throat> Bush, out of, newly out of office, maybe a year or two, is at JFK Airport. He's getting ready to make a speech overseas. Possibly and, um, and someone comes over to him and says, excuse me, Mr. President, Donald Trump is here and he's wondering if you'd like to meet him. And, and Bush sort of pulls, the, over. pulls the paper down and says no, and then goes back to, and thus began a decades-long warmth toward the Bushes. So that's um, why he hates the that's Bushes. That's why he hates the Bushes. Um, so that's that's one. The other is, um, and I, I have some I have some reporting in the book. I, something that hasn't come up a lot in interviews about this book that um, is a theme throughout. And I really did try to write a book of reporting and not tapes. But um, the theme of you succeeded. Oh, thank you. But the, the theme of um, of how violence animates his idea of strength, and then strength in turn in turn animates what makes him a boss. So. There's a couple of incidents, one is 1998, one is 2019, where he throws things. Um, in one case, he throws it at a person who's quitting the Trump Organization. The guy's quitting and he literally throws something at him. A friend of the guy thought it was a shoe. Um, in 2019, when he finds out that James Comey is not getting charged, that Barr is telling him that he, he spends the afternoon calling one person after another in the little dining room off the Oval Office, you know, don't you think he should have been charged? Um, he picks up the remote control of the television in there, slams it into the president's head in front of everybody. Um, this is, I think, important in the context, well, I think it's interesting, but I think it's important in the context of the January 6th hearing where Cassidy Hutchinson testified and 
talked about, which I'm sure many of you watched, if not all, and she talked about an episode where he threw a cheeseburger at the, at the wall, um, and people were cleaning the ketchup up, and that she was part of it. I, I did hear the, from others that the cheeseburger incident did happen. Um, I, I just think it's very revealing about his reactions to stress, anger, and so forth. Um, and I, I sort of think that's an overlooked part of what happened. It's a, re a really revealing part. Also, if you talk to people who, who worked in the West Wing, you saw all this up close. Okay, actually, two more questions. Sorry, quickly, one to that. What was it like? I mean, you're one of the best sourced Trump reporters that anyone knows. Were people more willing to talk to you because it was a book and it wasn't going to be in the Times on the A1 the next day? 100%. I mean, so I, one of the things that I found out in, in the process of covering Trump a couple of years ago is all of these these books by competitors were popping up, and they had such good stuff in them. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Percival Rucker book had just amazing stuff. Um, and I asked somebody who had clearly talked for the book, who I had asked a question related to something I was annoyed. Why did you do this? Why will you not tell me this when you asked me? But why are you doing this for a living? And their answer was because there's no immediacy. It doesn't come out like that. It's good. I don't have to worry about it. It's not a tomorrow problem. And implicit in that was there's not going to be a big leak hunt right, you know, right away to figure out what this is. I don't have to worry about this being shoved in Trump's face. And it was interesting. I got a text from um, a, a Democratic operative who I've known for a long time this morning who saw that I had said that in another interview. And the person said, this really spoke to me, because that's why I'm doing it. And, you know, I just don't have to worry the same way. So this, there was, there's some bipartisanship um, in this. Um, but there were people who just refused, including when I would say, can I please use this in the paper tomorrow? I wouldn't do it. So I was working with my editors at the Times a lot throughout this book. And stuff that, you know, was confirmable that we could put in the report that the editors wanted, we did. And I think that really speaks to when people say, oh, you sat on this interesting story or something Trump said for a book, it was, you had to get people to actually say stuff to you, and sometimes it's under your conditions. Well, and also, I think there's an assumption that, A, if something appeared, we must have known it in real time, and that's just a complete mistake, number one. Um, and, and number two, there is, to, it isn't just about sort of where it appears. We, we don't actually, as reporters, just print everything we hear the second we hear it, because we need to confirm it. And so we need to make sure it's real. Um, and and that's a part of our process, too. My last question is going to come from an audience member. Do you think that Donald Trump actually wants to be president again? At this point, yes. I actually think, I think the reverse is true of what was true in 2016. I think that he didn't want to be president. He just wanted to see if he could win. And he was having fun campaigning. And now I think he doesn't want to campaign we get a big round of applause for Maggie Abraham. Thank you so much. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This gift set is for your friend that has a little. It has all of your diapering essentials, bath and body. This is just the cutest towel gift set. There's really no other gift set any mom or dad-to-be would want.
Well, no. 